Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Bruce Mole, and with me is my colleague Michael Jonas. We're chatting today in separate interviews with the two candidates vying in the te- Democratic primary for lieutenant governor, Quentin Palfrey and Jimmy Tingle. It's not a race that gets a lot of coverage, particularly when Governor Charlie Baker is riding high in the polls and loaded with campaign cash. So we thought it would be interesting to learn more about these guys and why they are running for the number two job in state government. So, Quentin, why are you running for lieutenant governor? Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I'm Quentin Palfrey. I'm running for lieutenant governor. And let me just spend a moment explaining my background and how I came to this race. Um, so I was the chief of the healthcare division in the attorney general's office in Massachusetts as we were working on uh, health reform. Um, and then I served as senior advisor for jobs and competitiveness in the White House under President Barack Obama. Um, and um, I have been involved in public service for a long time. I've been very focused on inequality and poverty. Um, and I think that um, my run uh, for lieutenant governor comes in the context of a time uh, when President Trump um, has been attacking our values and when the federal government is moving away from providing the kinds of consumer protections and social services that we've come to expect from the federal government. And I think that there's a really important role for states like Massachusetts uh, to lean in um, and really focus on the issues that affect ordinary people. So that's education and transportation and jobs, fighting the opioid crisis, climate change. Um, But I think that um, we need a governor and a lieutenant governor who share the values of the voters of Massachusetts and who are really in touch with the challenges that people face. Um, One of the things I'm really interested in about the office of the lieutenant governor um, is that I think that it um, has the potential to be a bridge between the governor's office and cities and towns where the issues that affect ordinary people really happen. So whether that's education or transportation or housing costs or the opioid crisis, a lot of these things happen at the local level. Um, There's also a potential role in helping to navigate a federal system that's now uh, dysfunctional and sometimes immoral as we deal with how we're going to work with an immigration enforcement system uh, that is uh, fueled by xenophobia and racism. We have important choices as to how to interface with that system or HHS, which is dismantling the gains that we've made in Um, in expanding access to health insurance. Um, And then finally, the lieutenant governor plays an important role in the courts. I'm a lawyer. I went to Harvard Law School. I clerked for a judge and um, have spent a lot of my time thinking about civil rights. And I think that um, judges have a really important role in protecting the rule of law. We've seen at the national level um, uh, the Supreme Court moving in the wrong direction on affirming the Muslim ban or eroding uh, workers' rights or voting rights, women's rights, gay rights. But even here in Massachusetts, we now have an SJC uh, with a majority of the justices appointed by Republican governors who just knocked down the millionaire's tax. Well, that's where we're going to get the resources to actually lean in on fixing our broken transportation system or funding our education system properly or uh, helping with college affordability. So I think there are real issues that affect ordinary people um, that uh, the lieutenant governor can lean in on. And I just don't think we're leading under Baker and Polito in those ways. So that's a super impressive answer. But I guess I was maybe being a little cheeky about it. The the lieutenant governor's job is sort of a, a, a number two position. And all those things are very important things that you're talking about. 
why not run for the top job or why not run for some job where you would be, you know, the person in charge? That's sort of what I'm curious about. The lieutenant governor, I think we did a comedy series a, a while back when um, Deval Patrick was governor and we had Tim Murray go out on the um, at, at the public garden and he stopped people with a microphone and camera and said, do you know who I am? And most people didn't. And he, it turned into a hilarious routine uh, and he played it up to the hilt. But so, so the lieutenant governor is often a sort of not a butt of jokes, but part of jokes. That's what I was curious about. Why, why that position? I think these are serious times, and I think that this is a role that you know is what you make of it, and what the governor lets you make of it. But I think at its best, the office of lieutenant governor is a statewide constitutional office that's charged with interfacing with people where they live. Um, And one of the things I've done in the course of this campaign is travel to more than 200 communities across Massachusetts and just listen to the challenges that people are facing. And I think that that's important um, as a way of campaigning. I really believe in the grassroots. But I think it's especially important as preparation for this kind of a role. I think if you had a lieutenant governor with a strong track record in public service, who's been invested in fighting against poverty and inequality throughout his career, um, and who develops relationships um, with uh, city councilors in North Adams and community leaders in Roxbury and, uh, and uh, you know, important groups in, in Fall River and in Falmouth, you, um, you can have somebody who can really lean in on issues that affect ordinary people. People. And I think it's hard for a governor uh, to do that. I think a good governor should understand what's going on in the communities all across Massachusetts. But I think the lieutenant governor's role is particularly well-suited um, to be an ally and an advocate for those sets of issues. And, um, I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about this role uh, sort of at the ground level working with mun- municipalities. That's in some ways, you know, the role that the current lieutenant governor, Karen Polito, has carved out or that has been sort of carved out and sort of assigned to her through the administration. She's their, you know, liaison to local officials. So, um, it, you know, it seems like a, a good fit for the office. How do you, again, uh, there, you know, we have this odd situation in Massachusetts where, where the, the gubernatorial candidate and lieutenant governor candidate don't, you know, run together on a ticket. They're it's kind of an arranged marriage, and the voters are the ones doing the arranging. So, you, you know, if you're fortunate enough to win the nomination next Tuesday, you will be paired with uh, whichever of the two uh, uh, candidates for governor wins. So um, how do you sort of see that dynamic? Are you, are you ready to sort of uh, – I imagine uh, the diplomatic thing, the right thing to say is you're ready to go, go forth, you know, uh, as a running mate of either of these guys, Bob Massey or Jay Gonzalez. But you also, you know, how, how do you have any sense or assurance that – that that role that you see for the job is one that they're gonna that they're gonna see uh, for for whoever would be their lieutenant governor. Sure. So first of all, we have two terrific Democratic candidates for governor. I think both Jay and Bob have a really robust vision um, for where we want to take uh, the Commonwealth. And I think it's very different from the vision that Baker and Polito have. Um, and on important issues, I think that Baker has Baker and Polito have chosen uh, to align themselves with national Republicans. Of course, they fundraise alongside with the RNC and the Koch brothers for people like Roy Moore in Alabama 
Alabama or last week uh, for Jim Lyons in Andover, who's an anti-LGBTQ uh, candidate. Uh, Karen Polito, as you know, has been uh, one of the leaders in the fight against equal marriage and has been uh, opposed to the women's rights, right to choose uh, throughout much of her career. Uh, Baker wants to veto the Safe Communities Act. Um, he did veto uh, the legislation that would have lifted the cap on poor kids and provided benefits to 8,700 uh, lower-income uh, children in the Commonwealth. Um, they take money from the fossil fuel industries, and their environmental record is pretty spotty as a result. So I think that there are real differences um, with, uh, with Baker and Polito. I also think that there's a real lack of leadership um, by Baker and Polito and something that both Jay and Bob um, have a real vision for where to take the Commonwealth. So if you think about, for instance, our crumbling transportation system, well, part of that is that there's been mismanagement um, dating back to Baker's time uh, in ANF, managing uh, some of those cost overruns in the big dig. But even worse, there's a failure to articulate a vision for how we're going to fix this challenge in our transportation system other than privatization, um, other than mismanagement by uh, entities like Keolis, and some vague notion of reform before revenue. We have a notion that we actually need to invest in our public uh, transportation system and have longer-term transportation planning that actually works for ordinary people. Or take the education system. So Baker was aligned uh, with uh, some out-of-state dark money forces um, in the uh, question two fight a couple of years ago. But beyond that, what is his vision for remedying the inequalities in our funding formula? So we have a funding formula um, that uh, hasn't been updated in, in almost 25 years. Um, and as a result, we have some of the best schools on earth, um, but we also have some of the starkest inequalities on a geographic basis or on a racial basis. We're laying off teachers in communities all across Massachusetts, like Brockton or Southbridge or Lawrence. Um, and I think that Jay and Bob have a vision for how we're going to really invest in reforming uh, the formula and leaning in to provide a world-class education, which, by the way, we're constitutionally required to provide. Um, uh, to children across Massachusetts, or take the opioid crisis. I know that this is an area uh, that Baker talks a lot about and, and takes a lot of credit for, but I think that this is something uh, that is devastating families and communities across Massachusetts. And, um, you know, everywhere I go, people say, you know, I just lost a family member. But I also hear people saying there aren't enough beds. There aren't enough services. You wait too long. And I don't think we're leaning in to take on these challenges with the seriousness they deserve. And I think Jay and Bob have that vision. Um, and to your specific question, how do I know that we'll be in sync? I mean, I've been running for about a year alongside Jay and Bob. We spend a lot of time together in events all across the Commonwealth, and we've had uh, you know, direct channels of communication. So we've talked about it. I'm, I'm, I'm very confident um, that no matter which of them wins, they're going to provide much more leadership than Baker and Polito, and then I'm going to fit in very nicely with that team. So if I go into the uh, voting booth next Tuesday, I have to choose between you or Jimmy Tingle. Why should I choose you? So I'm a huge fan of Jimmy Tingle. And one of the things that I will say is that I've really appreciated um, the 
the tone of this uh, campaign. We've been good friends throughout the process. It's been a very positive campaign. They don't always work out that way. And I have a lot of respect for uh, what he brings here. But I will compare my uh, resume and my experience in the White House and Massachusetts Attorney General's office and running the Poverty Lab, J-PAL North America at MIT, um, to, the, to the resume that he brings to this job. I think that this is a hard job. Uh, to do as your first job in, in government. Um, he spent his career um, in entertainment doing wonderful things and promoting uh, great causes. Um, but I think it's very hard for your first job in government um, after being an entertainer is to be a heartbeat away from the governor. And, you know, if you think about it, um, our lieutenant governors sometimes do need to serve as governor. So Salucci and Swift are familiar to everybody, but Karen Polito has acted as governor on a number of occasions. And I think that as you're thinking about who to choose as your lieutenant governor, you should picture that person having the experience and the skills and the vision to step in on day one if there were uh, let's say the governor was out of state or out of the country on a trade mission and you had something like the marathon bombing happen, the lieutenant governor would be called upon to step in and manage that situation and bring together different parts of government. Um, and even in less stark circumstances, the, gov the, the governor often gives the lieutenant governor a portfolio of issues to lean in on. And I think that I have the skills from years of uh, working in the White House and in the Commerce Department um, that would allow me to hit the ground running in a way that I think would be challenging for Jimmy. Well, thank you for joining us and good luck on Tuesday. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure being here. And now it's on to round two of our conversations with the Democratic candidates for Lieutenant Governor. And we are delighted to welcome here to the podcast Jimmy Tingle. Thank you very much for having me. So it's great to have you. Now, uh, I was going to start out with something a little bit risky. I know you are known for being funny and, mm -hmm. and you're approaching this campaign very seriously. I am not particularly funny, but I have a little bit of a joke to sort of launch us, but it has a serious underpinning to it. And this was told to me by a, a longtime Massachusetts operative who once said, uh, in reference to lieutenant governor's office, he said, there was once a woman who had two sons. One was lost at sea, the other became lieutenant governor, and neither was ever heard from again. <laughs> uh, so, and, and so obviously, you I know. I love it. Oh, well. <laughs> I love the sea, and I love serving in public, public service. Uh, well, that's good to hear. But obviously, the, you know, the underpinning of that is, yeah. is, is this kind of question that people have about the, about the office, which is both, you know, a heartbeat away from the governor's office, right. one of the most important constitutional offices, but historically one that, you know, sometimes people have kind of, uh, kind of uh, drifted off into obscurity when, when they hold it. So just tell us a little bit about what drove you, you know, not only to be interested in public service, but in particular to jump into this race for lieutenant governor here in the sure. Commonwealth. Well, thanks again for having me on, uh, Michael. I really appreciate it. And what got me into this particular race, I've been doing social and political humor, as you indicated, for many, many years. And it's always about trying to find insightful, in, you know, angles on policy and angles to make things funny. And you really have to do your homework in order to do that. So after like 30 years of doing this and having been a commentator on 60 Minutes 2 and MSNBC and having done uh, working in front of the general public for many years on stage communicating material that had to do with social and political issues of the day, 
I, after the last election, I just felt like I can do more. I can do more than just tell jokes. I can do more than just entertain people. And uh, what led up to it was I usually help the Democrats for the presidential uh, elections over the years. And I was doing that with Bonnie Frank. We were doing events for Hillary Clinton. We did a few around the state. And I loved doing them. And I, Bonnie would do 10 or 15 minutes of you know, get out the vote, and I would do 10 or 15 minutes of social and political humor. And after the last one, I said, Bonnie, do you think it's too late for me to get into politics? He said, no, not at all. I thought he was going to say yes, <laughs> because he had just retired. He said, no, not at all. He said, let's have lunch. We had lunch. He said, what are you thinking about running for? I said, I'm thinking about running for lieutenant governor. He said, that's the exact right position I think you should run for. It's obviously statewide. You could work as a liaison with the, with the legislature. You know a lot of those people already. They know you. He said, you could work around uh, the state and as a liaison to the cities and towns. Again, your reputation as a humorist and a public figure precedes you. I think it would be helpful. I think you'd be an asset to the party. And I was really encouraged by his response, and he became the honorary chairperson of our campaign. So the basic reason I'm doing it is because I think I can communicate the message of the Democratic Party to both the people who agree with us, but as importantly, if not more importantly, the people we've lost, and especially to the people who have been left behind. And what is the message of the Democratic Party? The, Demo the message of the Democratic Party is that government matters. Government matters, and the government can change people's lives, and at times government can actually save people's lives. During the 1980s in my comedy career, I lost three friends to alcohol and drug-related causes. I personally was going downhill in a big way, primarily from alcohol. I started calling places for help, detoxes, rehabs, treatment centers, and I don't know if you ever tried to get anybody into these places or you yourself ever had an issue, but it, it can be very difficult. And I would get the runaround. There's no beds. There's long lines. Call back next week. You don't have insurance. I called the Cambridge City Hospital. They had a partially funded federally, uh, a partially federally funded program called Cahill 3. This is December 1987. I called the hospital. I said to the man who answered the phone, I really need help. And without missing a beat, this man said, you called the right place. His answer was so profound, 30 years later, I remember it as if it were yesterday. Wow. You called the right place. How often do you call a government agency and they say, hey, you called the right place? So you, usually you call the wrong place, I <laughs> exactly. guess, Exactly. Right? We'll put you on hold. Or the, you know, you got to call another number. And that was just an awesome experience. Long story short, I went into that hospital. I stayed seven days through Christmas 1987. I got out. I moved to New York City. I focused on stand-up comedy and recovery. A year later to the week, I went on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which at the time was the biggest number one show on television. The other guest that night, I say this for you older uh, listeners, the other guest That's that night- That's not Bruce and me. The, the, <laughs> the, other night, the other guest that night was Bob Pope. Wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. Name recognition. I love it. <laughs> right. But anyway, um, so I took away from that experience two big takeaways. Number one, I believe in God. Number two- I believe in the power of government to change people's lives because everything I have in my life, I mean everything, my wife, my son, my career, my education, my relationship with people like yourselves, my ability to run for public office in 2018 is directly attributable to that man's response when I reached out for help during the winter of 1987. And I'm running for lieutenant governor at the height of this opioid and substance abuse crisis in this city, this state, in this country, in large measure to hopefully ensure that when anybody in the state of Massachusetts picks up the phone and reaches out for help, the answer on the other end always will be, you called the right place. That's largely why I'm doing it. And that's where I think I can be helpful to the party and to the people of Massachusetts. 
both parties. It's a bipartisan issue, obviously. Uh, it's a bipartisan problem. Uh, rich, poor, black, white, Arab, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Uh, people need help in the state, and I think I can, I can help. So in terms of the lieutenant governor's role, that's something that I can do. And, you know, the lieutenant governor technically oversees the governor's council, chairs the governor's council, fills in for the governor if they're gone. But there are certain areas where the lieutenant governor can be very helpful, and they can take the lead on certain things if they're passionate about them or they have particular expertise in those, those individual areas. And that's an area that I think I could be helpful with. I mean, it's almost like the responsibilities are so ill-defined, you can sort of define them and, and set a course, you hope. Uh, you can help make it your own. Yeah. yeah. As you're campaigning, a lot of people have heard your name. They have a sort of sense of who you are. Yeah. But is that a – that's a benefit. You've got some name recognition. But do you have to do a lot of explaining about what you're doing in this position or – Yes, I do. Um the people who know me and who have been to my shows and are familiar with social, my, my social and political humor and commentary on 60 Minutes or MSNBC, then they don't see it as that much of a stretch. But the average person who might just hear, you're a comedian, oh, there's a comedian, quote, running for office, it would be the same thing if you heard John Stewart or Stephen Colbert or, you know, somebody was running for office and you, the first thing people might think is a joke. You know, it's a joke, and it's not a joke. It's, it's not Pat Paulson for no, president. Exactly. To date myself again. Yeah. No, no, it's not at all. Um, it's 100% serious. But it is something that you have to overcome and explain on the stump. So every stump speech that I've given in the last year, I say, many of you know me as an entertainer. You might know me as an entertainer, but I just want to assure you the campaign is 100% serious. And I went back to school about six years ago, seven years ago, went to the Kennedy School of Government because I've been thinking about doing more than just comedy for a, a while. Because you get to a certain point, at least I did, where, okay, we can joke about it. We can joke about gun control. We can point out the discrepancies with the immigration policy or substance abuse or whatever it is. But after a while, I personally felt like, you know what, I can do more. So I, went, I applied to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. I got in. I, I loved being there. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. I got a master's degree in public administration. And my whole goal was, can I use my skills as an entertainer for purposes beyond just entertainment? And then that was seven years ago, and I still did comedy. I founded an organization called Humor for Humanity, which is a social enterprise, a startup. And that was rewarding. But then came 2016, and the, the, basic, the basic thing that really got me, I said, you know, if Donald Trump can use his skills as a communicator and entertainer for that message, his message, I can at least try to use my skills and my, my expertise and my background as an entertainer and a humorist and a commentator for our message. And so that's what I'm going to try to do. Hmm. And I, uh, you hit on one thing that I'd really love to hear you talk more about, and that is that you feel like, you know, you can help, uh, I don't know how you put it, you know, sort of rally, you know, people within the democratic fold, but also sort of people beyond that. And I think that that is really an important question for anybody uh, in your role. If you're fortunate enough to get the nomination next week, you will be paired with one of the, the two candidates running for governor. And, and you guys are going to come out of the gate, frankly, next uh, Wednesday as you know, everybody's going to say, well, here are the, I don't know, the underdogs, the guys that are going to be Charlie Baker's roadkill. I mean, there's all sorts of ways people are talking about how invincible Baker is. So so um, it sounds like you have some ideas about how to shake up that calculus and the role in particular that you could play on this ticket to do that. So yeah. just 
Tell us a little well, bit about my that. My goal is to run a very positive and aspirational campaign. And the question is, can we do better than the current administration? Can we do better with public education? I travel all over the state. I'm hearing they, the, the cities and towns around the state do not have enough money for the schools. The foundation budget has not been fully funded for years. They don't have enough money. Classrooms, there's a huge discrepancy between the number of kids in classrooms, student-teacher ratio, dependent on where you go. The amount of money spent in one school district is not equal to the, the amount spent in another school district. And that's just one area. Public transportation, you go to Western Mass, they, they're, they're yearning for public transportation. High-speed rail to Springfield. Uh, you go to Worcester, they don't have enough uh, regional uh, transportation. You know, you go to around the state and you talk to people and they say, we need more. We need more from the state. We're not getting what we need. And that's what we hopefully can help provide as, as the Democratic Party. We are the party of the, of the people, of the middle class, and we have to deliver uh, government services to people who need it and want it. And so that's one of the messages I think that we can provide. And, and just in a very simple way, I mean, I'm thinking about, I'm not thinking about Donald Trump when I'm uh, running this whole year. I'm thinking about if we get in there, how are we going to, how are we going to reform the funding of public education so the quality of a child's education does not depend on the property values of the parent's home? Mm-hmm. How are we going to do that? How are we going to uh, in, in, in influence the cultural mindset so people look at substance abuse and, and treatment, alcohol and drug treatment, the same they w- way they would look at any other medical issue? If somebody crossed the street here in Beacon Hill and broke their leg or got hit by a car, an ambulance would come, take them to the hospital, and they would uh, uh, you know, x-ray the leg, put a cast on the leg, and give them crutches until they can walk again. We have to be able to come to the same conclusion when it comes to uh, uh, alcoholism, substance abuse, the opioid crisis, so the people who need help and want help can get help and ultimately walk again. And this is the message we have to carry to the uh, to, to the general public. And people say, well, Jimmy, you know, Charlie Baker is a social liberal and he's pro-choice and he's pro-gay marriage and he's, uh, you know, pro-gun safety. Fine, okay, fine. But he was elected with millions of dollars of National Republican Party money. And as governor, he has raised millions of dollars for the National Republican Party. And these people are not pro-choice. They are not pro-gay marriage. They are not pro-gun safety. They are not pro-immigration reform. Right. They are the, basically the, the opposite. So a vote for Charlie Baker is a vote for the National Republican Party. So if we want to send a message to Donald Trump and the National Republican Party, the way we do it, we put a Democrat back in the corner office in the state of Massachusetts. Right. But, but so opinion. far, you know, the, I, I get what you're saying, yeah. and, the, and, the, and the issues that you speak to, I think there's a lot of interest among the public, and you talk about Baker's fundraising, and I know there's been a lot re- written about his ties to the National Party. But I mean, so far, it doesn't appear to have made a dent. People seem to be still pretty pleased from what polls show with how things are going. That's why I'm wondering if you're – when you talked about Trump's uh, – kind of he brought something new in terms of his ability to communicate – that made a difference, and you want to do that, mm-hmm. obviously, with a very different set of values. I mean, is there, you know, you know, and I frankly, I would say of funding of public schools is. I mean, what? But how could, do you communicate that in a way that kind of shakes up the, the what seems to be people saying, "Yeah, we want to see better schools," but they still are well, kind of 
confident in Baker as the guy on the, with his well, hand on the tiller. Sure. You go to Fitzburg, you go to Fall River, you go to Lowell, and you say, why are the quality of your schools not equal, to, or the amount of funding that you have for your schools not equal to other suburban schools that have higher property values? Mm-hmm. Why is that? We as Democrats want to change that. We want to fix that. We want to create a, a more fair and equal and just society in the state of Massachusetts. Higher education. It's the biggest, it's the one of the things that Massachusetts is known for, and higher education is underfunded. We have uh, UMass Boston is underfunded. There isn't enough money for these places. And that's just, I mean, I was in Springfield, Mass, uh, excuse me, uh, Amherst, excuse me, West Springfield, and there was a woman who teaches at Amherst, and she was saying that uh, there are adjunct professors at Amherst, at U- teaching at UMass Amherst, that are eligible for food stamps. And so when we have adjunct professors or professors in college teaching college kids and they are eligible for food stamps, that speaks to me about an underfunding of higher education in this state. Mm-hmm. And that is the future of the, of the state and that's the future of the economic uh, health of the Commonwealth. So it's just something that has to be done. And I think the Democrats can carry that message and push that message and say we can do better. So the Democrats were sort of counting on uh – not just the Democrats, perhaps, but the Democrats were counting on a, a, a constitutional amendment passing that would have raised taxes on the, the very wealthy in our, our state. The C- SJC shot that down. What, what's, your, what's plan B for the Democrats? I don't know because I'm not there yet, but my basic job would be to help enact the agenda of the, of the governor as an ambassador for the governor's positions. I will say that the Republican Party traditionally takes a pledge, right? No new taxes. Well, we take a different pledge. Our pledge is one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. So if we don't have equality of funding in public schools in the state of Massachusetts, we do not have liberty and justice for all. And that's not just a Democratic Party message. That's an American message. And I think the values of that message are going to resonate with the people all over the state. Uh, Great. Well, listen, Jimmy Tingle, I want to thank you so much for coming in and talking with us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. And I I would love all your listeners out there, or would love at least your consideration, if not your outright support, on September fourth. Thank you so much. Can and I give the Can I give the website? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Little shameless plug. Jimmy Tingle for Mass. That's four. The number four. Mass. M A S S dot com. Jimmy Tingle for Mass dot com. I approve this message. <laughs> Michael might not approve it, but I approve it. <laughs> and with that, this has been another installment of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. For my colleague, Bruce Moll, for our guest, Jimmy Tingle, and Quentin Palfrey before that, we'll see you next time.